Happy Halloween and welcome to the first ever podcast. My name is Jeremy Bohm. I am your host. And if this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. This is episode 166. And my guest this week is none other than Mark McCoy. He's a musician known for bands like Charles Bronson, Das Oath, Holy Molar, Failures, Absolute Power. He's been in so many, so many awesome bands. He's the label owner of the very storied and legendary Youth Attack Records. And he's an artist whose work you've seen for album covers by bands like Full of Hell, Nothing. He did the Hesitation Wounds cover. All of the incredible work for the Youth Attack stuff. You always know his work as soon as you see it. And uh, let me tell you, having this conversation was a lot of fun. He was the perfect guest for a Halloween episode because this man has such a deep knowledge of horror. It's absolutely impressive. It's quite intimidating, to be honest. And I asked Mark to put together a top 10 list of rare and obscure horror movies that people should seek out. So listen for that at the end of the episode after he answers the uh, last question. He gives us that top 10 list. Also, if you head on over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon, there is a bonus episode available right now where Mark answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. And let me tell you, it's an interesting one. It, uh, it goes in a direction that I don't think either of us were expecting. Um, so if you subscribe for as little as $3 a month, you get access to that plus tons of other bonus material. And, uh, if you subscribe for just a little bit more, you can, so you yourself can submit questions to upcoming guests, see who's coming on all sorts of fun stuff. It would mean a lot and it helps support the show. Also, it helps to support by subscribing to the show on Spotify, Apple, wherever it is you're listening to this. And of course, leaving a positive rating and review that helps so, so much. And just really telling your friends. It would, uh, you know, anytime anyone reposts about the show, it means a whole lot. Um, getting any sort of new eyes on the show is extremely helpful at a time when it's hard to get anyone's attention. So it would mean a whole lot. And uh, I really appreciate it. Um, but that's it for me. So without further ado, here is my conversation with the unique, the talented, the mysterious. It is the one and only Mark McCoy. <laughs> What's up, Mark? It's so nice to see you. How are you today? Hey, buddy. Good to see you. Good to see Hi. you. I, you, uh, you know, for, this is obviously an audio show, not a visual show, but uh, I was excited as soon as you came on to see uh, the the plethora of records. And is that VHS behind you? What do you got there? Uh, those are DVDs. They're DVDs. Okay, yeah. I was going to yeah. see. I was wondering how much of a, of, of a nerd for the movies you were going to be if I didn't know uh, if they were going to be VHS. Yeah. <laughs> yeah out of frame here it's surrounded by books and movies yeah you can't see them all i love it yeah, i love yeah, it i kept them all yeah when did you start <laughs> when did you start uh collecting records I, i'm just curious i mean that'll probably come in a little you know when we talk about music stuff but like were you always a a physical media kid from early on oh no no i never had money to do any of that um at best i'd have a meager allowance which i would um you know save up to buy like one record a month or something right Right. Yeah, and yeah, was, yeah. And I remember ordering from Tang Records, and you know the records showed up like three months later, and they were warped. And you know, I remember like returning my Negative Effects LP. <laughs> <laughs> it was this big ordeal, and yeah, I remember buying the uh, Jerry's Kids was only on a CD at the time, so you could get the both albums on CD. And I remember it was it was such a big deal to have it because you couldn't get it where I lived in, in Illinois. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, 
back you know i i always hear so much about the the specific like punk mail order days um and it always just seems when everyone talks about it it's like you put money in an envelope and you just hope that you know with this with spit and a wish oh that yeah that something is going to come back eventually yeah in high school i had a three dollar lunch allowance for my parents so that was 21 bucks a week so in my mind that if i was willing to starve that was seven seven inches you know right so i i remember uh, i would kind of go halfway and compromise so a taco bell you could get like a 59 cent burrito and yeah. i would just hold out you know i would, I would just <laughs> eat that and on on friday i would send my cash off to wherever recess records or yeah I, whatever um, it's a- and, <laughs> yeah, and I, would, I would get like two or three, seven inches at a time and slowly sort of gain an understanding of this music world outside of what was available at the mall. Totally, totally. Yeah. Um, so, yo, are you from are you from DeKalb originally as DeKalb, DeKalb? Oh, uh, no, I'm not. I'm from an hour away from there in this lakefront town called Waukegan. So it was a really big city. I think at the time it was like 65,000 people. It was kind of the sprawling suburb, but by the time I grew up, it was already dying because all the, the major industry had cleared out of there. So left behind this like literal toxic wasteland on the waterfront, like coated in asbestos and, you know, oil and I don't know what else. But yeah, yeah the, the beach would close down in the summer and uh, it would be too toxic to even go in the water. So uh, wow. that, that was a big part of my memory of like, we've got this beach, but we can't go there because it's unsafe. You could get cancer or die. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. This is like two miles from where I lived. And yeah. I, actually grew, I grew up across from what in the 1950s had been a landfill and that was all fenced off too. So um, I remember kind of climbing under the fence and uh, there were these pipes in the ground and we would drop rocks into them and just to get a sense of how far down it was, you oh, know, right. how far down they had buried this trash. And it must've been, I don't know, hundreds of feet. Because you'd wait and wait and wait, and then you hear the splash. And so we grew up thinking, like, God, there's like toxic waste across the street under the ground. You can't go into the the uh, the lake. And then just the next town up from us had a nuclear reactor that one of the reactors, you know, was faulty or something. And like they were worried they had a crack in it. And we were just like, Oh my God, you know, it's like a nuclear meltdown, like right, right. next to us. So this is kind of the environment that I grew up in. You, and after a while, you just sort of take it for granted. Like, oh yeah, whatever. We're fine. You know, you being such a, you know, <laughs> such a massive horror fan, I feel like where what you're describing is like seven different ways mm-hmm. to create a horror film with all of those different things in your environment. It's like all of those different things could, could be the plot device for what could be a horror film. Was there any movies yeah. filmed in that area or based on any of that stuff? No, no. It was total no man's land. Oh, you know what? There were some scenes from uh, Groundhog's Day filmed. <laughs> oh, actually, you know what? A classic, um, horror, a classic horror film, Groundhog's Day. Well, you know, Day. I, I grew up, you know, half an hour from the North Shore where John Hughes shot all of his, all his films. So there's, there's a couple places, like, you know, basically where my parents live now. Yeah. Um, uh, like the the motel and planes, trains, and automobiles is basically across the street from my parents. But, you know, I never saw any of this stuff. I was so little. But I, I remember asking my dad, you know, kind of in hindsight, like, what the hell were you thinking, like, moving here? You know what I mean? I mean, why why would you pick this place to live? It's so fucked up. You know, like, on top of every other problem that it had, it, like the health concerns alone. And, uh, you know, his, his dad grew up on the naval base, just the town south of us. He just didn't think about this stuff, you know. We don't have uh, a, a, 
I, I think in their generation, they didn't have this sort of uh, self-awareness that we've developed, that I, I think at least. Yeah, sure. I mean, sometimes it could just be as simple as, oh, well, we can afford a home here. So, or, so that's, you know, that's all. Yeah, like, we, you know. like, oh, this has got a nice yard and, oh, this is, all, you know, it's close to the grocery store. I think that's totally. more of like what he was thinking, you know, it's yeah. practical, it's the school district's doable, whatever. Totally, so, totally. So yeah. when did you actually move to DeKalb then? Oh, when I went to college. So oh. when, I, when I left high school, you know, um, it was the only school I went to. I had a, an art teacher named Bill, this big hulking guy. And he told me, oh, yeah, I went to Northern, to the art program. So you should go there because he really liked me and he, he was kind of my mentor. And oh, I, I didn't even apply anywhere else. It didn't even cross my mind that, like, um, I could do better or um, I should but strive, strive for something you know, beyond that, you know, when I was 16, they're like, okay, you got to pick where you want to go to school. I thought, well, I have no idea where, I mean, I don't even know what college even is. I don't even understand. To me, it just seemed like high school kind of like with, you know, no parents around or something. Right. Uh, (laughs) College, I remember was once explained to me as it's like high school without the friends. And I was like, well, I pretty much already experienced that. So I I don't know. I don't know if that's much more different. Uh, but no, I totally get yeah. it too. I mean, it's like, why would you even consider other things when you're like, you know, it's nearby home. It's just where I'm being told I should go. So there it yeah, is. Yeah, uh, You know, I grew up with this attitude. That I was like a loser, you know, um, I didn't care about anything. I thought this, you know, the world of adulthood was horrible to me. It was horrifying. I had no desire to join it and, and the, like, become a grown up and partake in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah the, no, I, I was I, trying I, to hold out as long as possible. That kind of formed my my worldview early on. Yeah, yeah. So. so, you know, the first question I usually ask people who play music is: when you were growing up, what was the first thing that you remember connecting with musically that felt like it was yours? Maybe not something that your parents were playing or something like that, but something that you found that gave you a sense of identity early on. On my eighth birthday, I was given some cash, and there was a Kmart type department store called Zare. And uh, it didn't last long, but I remember going to Zare and they had these tape bins like in the middle of the aisles where they would just dump stuff for cheap. And I spent all my money on classical music. Like I just got, you know, Beethoven and Bach and all, all the German, you know, yeah. and, and uh, I, cause I, I think that I, I was looking for something that I think provided uh, an alternative to what was around me. Cause I just, for whatever reason, I, I wasn't gravitating toward it, you know? And I, I think in hindsight, what it started was the basis of me using music to create like a mood or an environment that I actually live in. You know, it became like this, this actual thing where it wasn't just music on the radio, but it, it fostered your perspectives of life that you would, you would start to live through the music and, 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 you know, like your behavior would adjust accordingly to whatever you were doing through the music. Interesting. Yeah, I was going to say, I was wondering if it was just because those were names that you had heard before because of textbooks or, or stuff you heard in school, like, oh, I know the name Beethoven. I know this, but it sounds like you were actually seeking it out. Like, I want to hear something that is just more atmospheric. I think maybe, too, I was sensing that my middle class parents have very standard tastes and I sense that there was a world beyond where not, (laughs) I don't mean to fault them for not having like this, you know, high sense of culture, Sure, but I I just felt that, well, there's maybe there's more out there that I, 
I'm, I'm just curious about it. I've always had that curiosity. I just want, I want to know. So right. I think that that's where it started. Yeah. And where does it go from there? Because that, you know, a lot of those people are not, <laughs> we're not around anymore. So like, how did you, how did your musical exploration go from there? I think it dead ended, you know, because eventually you go through life and, you know, you make friends and they're into music and you start picking up what they're into. So, okay. Uh, I didn't know anyone that was into that, you know, that would yeah. listen to anything like that. So, uh, you know, I kept those tapes, but yeah. I, I think it was kind of a field experiment in that sense where I was looking to see what it would do for me. And it, I don't know if it did a whole lot at the time, maybe in hindsight, I can kind of like put it into a, a context, but not so much at the time. I, I basically just through movies and media, whatever, um, gravitated back into what, what was popular, but not of my parents' generation. So, you know, I started listening to like hair metal or whatever. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's, yeah. I have a, I put a note here in my, in my thing here being like, is there any music that people might be surprised that you like? And that almost kind of answers that question at the same time. Oh, do, you, do you still love classical music? Do you still have a connection for it? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I listen to it every day, basically driving. Yeah. Wow. Do yeah. you have any? I, I, I noticed too composer? that, yeah. um, yeah. Uh, my favorite composer is Herbert von Karajan, uh, German composer, um, from the 20th century. Um, who focused mostly on, on German music, but did other things. Um, but I noticed that in our dog's behavior, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I see how she reacts in the car. It actually calms her down. It's, oh, wow. It's kind of interesting, you know, because you know, if I play like death metal or something, she'll, she kind of looks like anguished in a way. You know? I, I can kind of see the, exp I can read her expressions, you know? Yeah. Just, it's very telling, but yeah. <laughs> but, oh. um, yeah. Yeah, I actually I actually love hair metal too. So yeah. You still, have a, you still got a big love. You still got a big love for that as well. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. You know, in, in hindsight, it's definitely a bad influence on the culture. You know, you could you could make a case where it was pushing this decadence into the mainstream that sure. really didn't benefit anybody, you know? Really right. didn't benefit any of the bands that I mean they look at them today. Or yeah. any of the any of the kids that would get into this has sort of fostered this rebellious recklessness. And, you know, it's complicated, but I think, um, I don't know. I, I have that feeling about a lot of things now where I'm like, I don't know. Was it really a good idea to get into that? Was, you know, would I advise that if I was my parent? I don't know. I just heard two people talking about this recently and, you know, there's always been the conversation. It's like not anything any, anyone hasn't thought about, but like, you know, the whole, like how grunge, killed hair metal type of a conversation but an aspect that i never thought about was that you were that these people were looking at say nirvana like in the smells like teen spirit music, vid music video and it was the aspect of oh those people look like my friends from high school and they're able to be on mtv as opposed to you're looking at poison or rat or any of these bands that are like you know their music videos are in factories with sparks and like half naked women and all yeah, this stuff where totally. it was like and they're driving sports cars and you're like oh that's something i can never achieve so i think that i never thought about the fact that it was like oh these bands are making it seem like anybody can do it whereas those bands are making it seem like you have to you know start out rich and famous or something you know which is something <laughs> i never thought about yeah, you know, I think too that maybe grunge was far worse on society than hair metal because you know you have, you know, drinking and sex and you know that whole lot like rock and roll lifestyle promoted. But then with Nirvana, you just get pure nihilism. 
It's just, I'm a loser. I'm dropping out of society. I hate everything. I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to do heroin. Fuck it. And, you know, in hindsight, um, you know, the music I don't think holds up as well as hair metal. I think hair metal is more fun to listen to. Uh, I can't listen to Nirvana. I I just think they're horrible. Uh, (laughs) Uh, well, uh, I just Kurt's persona. I just can't stand it. It, it, it. There's something that's so abrasive about his, 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 the way that he carried himself. It's just, it, it repels me now. What was, uh, I mean, I, that's, I find that interesting because Dasoth had covered Tourette's. Was that just like, was that like the one song that you could get behind or <laughs> <laughs> what was? Oh, well, you know, that was a long time ago. Um, sure. I, I sure. grew up, I, you know, I love that album when it came out. You yeah, know, um, I remember writing an essay about it for one of my my classes. You know, yeah, and, and uh, you know, I it's undeniably a good album. I just can't listen to it. You know? No, I get that. Yeah, and I mean, I for like sort of the punk nature of like we're gonna go to a guy like Steve Albini and make like this extremely antisocial record when we're expected to do this big thing. But I understand what you're saying when you're talking about the effect it had on the culture with like sort of glorifying the depressive nature of what everybody, you know, was probably wanting to find music to get them out of that, but it was almost, you know, amplifying that. Yeah. I see it as a kind of anti-heroism. Yeah. Self-defeatist, self-defeatist music. Yeah. No, I get Um, it. I get it. um, Hair metal by contrast, it's just you know totally vapid, you know, but uh, (laughs) right. (laughs) It's not that I want to live their life. Totally. But it's like they imbue a spirit that yeah. I'm more drawn to now in, I love in, my, it. Old, in my old age. Um, so on the other side, I wanted to ask you, because, you know, I think you're you're equally known for your artwork. And I was curious when you were young, what the first thing you connected with art wise was. Was that something that you found really early on? Yeah, about 1980, 81. Uh, I went with my mom and my brother to a mall in Milwaukee. It's a really cool mall. And uh, for whatever reason, I bought the graphic novel of The Empire Strikes Back, the Del Rey paperback. And I was allowed to take that to church on Sunday and read it for the hour-long sermon. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) Which, in hindsight, I can't believe my parents allowed. Uh, But, you know, I think around that time, art developed into this idea that it was a kind of refuge for me, that their adult world, which was so boring and fake and, you know, horrifying in many ways. Um, the antithesis of it was art and to escape into it was, was certainly pleasurable. So although I was a huge star Wars fan, it was something about the, the, the personal approach to the graphic novel and just the way that the art was drawn. I remember it. Um, it, it was a, a soothing feeling that it, it gave me. It was like a relief from, the surrounding that I was forced to sit there. <laughs> oh my God. So, uh, I, I think that may be like the seed. I'm sure there's more to it, but like, that's what comes to memory. That is such a specific thing too. I also was forced to, to have to go to church. And as soon as this, when you'd like have the pamphlet and you would just be looking, being like, when is this? Okay, here comes the sermon. It's like, I remember specifically also every week getting the pamphlet of like what is in the agenda for the service or whatever and hoping that the sermon wasn't there every week you know being like maybe this week it won't be there 
And then it always, it always was. And then I think my refuge was my mom giving me a piece of like dentine cinnamon gum. And I'd be like, well, at least there's something that I can distract <laughs> myself with. Just, just think about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I just remember the tone of the sermon was like, there's always something wrong with me. You know, yes. like, uh, like yeah. you're never good enough. Totally. Um, you, you know, and you're always failing. But um, do you mind if I ask who what? you are? What, what, what brand of Christianity or what, or what was it? Um, I, well, I, my parents called it born again, Christianity. Um, I, I don't we know were, we were Lutheran. So, oh, okay. and, and Lutheran was like very on the, like, I'm not good enough. Let me talk about how, like, you know, all the wrong things I'm doing in my life. And it would just really amplified that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I know. I Lutheran, I feel like, was very Midwestern too. So I was curious sure. if it was, yeah. if it, if there it was, could have been that. No, I think it was just a matter of uh, my parents getting invited by some friends, like to mm. come to our church. And sure, you know, I think they wanted to have uh, maybe a more wholesome environment for us to grow up around. But you know, the, the kids that I knew there were they they weren't wholesome. Okay? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they didn't come from good families, and their parents were so messed up. Uh, you know, so in hindsight, I can see why they would need church because they're trying to fix themselves. But um, totally. I just never, I never really gravitated to it. I just, um, I felt off, off put by it. Uh, yeah. And, it, you know, I, anyway, with art, I just kind of stayed the course. And by age eight, and that would have been 1983, I was taking drawing classes outside of school. So in the evenings, I would go, I think, you know, for like 90 minutes or whatever to this uh, park rec center. And I, I remember learning shading. So we, we would do still life drawings from, you know, from like our desks or whatever. And that I think is really the first like serious attempt of me trying to replicate reality, just trying to, trying to draw as like as deliberately as I could. It's such a silly question from someone who like, I, like I've never been artistically inclined in any sort of way, but I'm curious, like this, this might sound kind of almost pedestrian and silly, but like, do you remember the first time when you were making something where you had that realization of like, oh, I can actually do this? Yeah, there was um, a, a cop that came to our first grade class and uh, he talked about, you know, like safety, basically not, not how to not get kidnapped. You know what I mean? Because okay. evidently there is probably something going on in our community. Sure. Um, and <laughs> he called himself Officer Friendly and handed out these little mimeographs of a, of a cop with some little kids. Like I think maybe like helping them cross the street or something. And we were to color them in. And the cop had a, a, a blank face. He had no features, which I thought was kind of interesting. But um, the kids you know, drew in their own cop faces. And I remember drawing mine and people circled around my desk and they were like, Whoa, how did you do that? And apparently I drew one really well. I, wow. That that was maybe the first inkling that I had like, Oh, I I'm good at this. Yeah. Wow. Like, so yeah. Like you gave them some sort of an expression or like it actually didn't just it look like crayons. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they would draw just like a dot dot and like a, you know, a line for yeah. like the mouth. Where I drew in the features, like you know, the, the eyebrows and the eyelids, and the. the and lips. at that point, had you been taking the art classes? No, so this would have been uh, two years before that. So wow, yeah, you know, I, I was I was on you know a course at, at at some point. Yeah. Do you remember the first album cover that struck you? You've done a lot of 
you know, album artwork, obviously. Um, do you remember the first album artwork that you saw that like kind of piqued your interest where you're like, oh, wow, like there's more to this than just the music? Yeah, it was the Roxy Music's Country Life. Mm. We had these two barely clad, beautiful women on the cover are standing in front of some you know, bushes. Mm -hmm. So bizarre. There was a... Um, a, a book of rock covers at the at, at the local library. So I remember flipping through it, and that one really stood out to me. Um, Sparks, come on, on my house, and uh, the Blind Faith cover, the the Sparks album, and the Roxy Music cover. The, those were made by the same people, oh, and so they had wow. they had a similar approach. Um, the Sparks record in particular just had these two Japanese women with their kimonos, and it's such a gorgeous cover. And it's very mysterious. And like the Roxy music, you just had two women and it didn't really give an indication of what you were getting into. The The Sparks cover had no text on it, no title on the front. And so that, that was something new to me because I just knew like the Beatles or the Rolling Stones where, you know, though the Stones didn't have their name on their first LP, um, you would just kind of associate like the name and the faces of the artists as the cover, like you'd put the band on the cover. And I, I think that started to spark an idea, spark, the, to trigger an idea in my mind that um, it didn't have to address the music directly. You know, like it was adding commentary to the content of the music, to the lyrics or whatever, or a feeling. Um, so that kind of stayed with me in the back of my mind. Uh, yeah, there's two different things that... that one, did you realize after the fact that it was the same artist that created those covers? Or was that something you put together later on where you're like, wow, this happens to just be the same person? No, I didn't know till later. No. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that was just the, the style of the time because albums had such importance that um, it was such a big deal to get a cool cover. And, it, right. and they were really pushing it as an art form up until, you know, like the late 70s. And then so, you meant... Uh, yeah. And then you mentioning, you know, that sort of sticking with you, not having the, the, maybe the text on the cover, you does that, do you feel like that's amplified a lot of the work you've done? Because when I think about yeah. a lot of the record covers you've done, if anything, there's usually maybe just like a sticker that will say the band name on it, but it's not actually on the cover. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've had disputes with bands where they want like their big, ugly logo on the cover. And I'm like, Oh, you're ruining my image. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I just wanted to to be an uh, environment. I want it to be its own mood. I I don't want it to be soured as a product. You know right. what I mean? Right. No, I get it. I get it. Yeah. I can also understand having the the back and forth with a with a band about it. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because you know, I I think I have a very forward thinking attitude towards this stuff, and. Uh, very anti-traditional in, in the in the sense of like especially with metal you know because every metal band wants their their logo in the corner or whatever yeah and i get it, it it's a genre thing does it get tough for you when you also create the logo and like the logo does that ever matter does that ever make a difference where you're like fuck man this logo actually might look good here well you know i'm not saying that it should never be on the cover right uh, but i just think there's some times where you don't need it totally you know? totally yeah. i'm pretty sure with the hesitation <laughs> ones cover it's not there's no, no and I yeah. and that was your call and I, I, I appreciated that. Yeah, no. I, I think I mean, we were on the same page though. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Uh what was your first concert? Uh I saw Seven Seconds play with um Tony Victory's band, um Only the Strong. 
in my hometown. So it was a big deal that Seven Seconds came through and I grew up loving the crew. I can't listen to it anymore. But um, <laughs> uh, they came out on stage and they all had long hair and I was so bummed. You know, they, were, they were like hippies trying to do like some U2 infused bullshit. Yeah. And um, they did play some of their old songs. So it was cool. But, you know, just as an experience, um, seeing the guys up there, I got uh, Troy Moat's bass pick. So that was cool. I, I kept that for a long time. Where was um, the but, show? Like, and what city was this in? In my hometown, Waukee, and and oh, wow. uh, okay, they yeah. they didn't hold they didn't really host events at this place like this sort of thing, but it did have a stage. And I remember a guy with a token entry shirt gets up on stage and he's like, "Look, everybody, the place is packed." He's like, "No stage diving, okay? If you stage dive, you're out of here." Seven seconds, you know. First note, that guy's <laughs> barreling <laughs> over everyone's heads into the crowd. Like, you know, was, I realize now, like he had to say that, but nobody took it seriously and. Right. It's like how a Gilman, it says no stage diving. It's just like, right. But it's it, like, it, it was just like a bloodbath. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> how, did you, how did you find yourself at that show? Well, I was a seven seconds fan. So uh, there was a local band in town that opened for them and they knew them somehow. It brought them on, on, you know, their tour brought them to our town to play. I remember buying tickets. You had to get a ticket. Yeah. And you could get them at the mall. So it was a big deal. They didn't really do this sort of thing. There weren't hardcore shows. There was no hardcore scene. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that was uh, that was how it, it happened. But, but I'd never went to rock concerts going growing up. I never went to see my parents' favorite bands. I never saw Metallica. I, I never did that. So I just never had the interest to be really in these big stadiums with crowds. It was just never my thing. No, I get it. I, did you ever, what was the first like big concert you went to? Did you eventually have one that you went to that you were like, wow, this is very different than what I'm used to? Not until like, like hair you know, metal band? high school. Yeah. No, no. Um, not until like a high school when I, you know, I think the first big show I saw was Green Day when I was like 16 and they just played in a bar. It was like a hundred people. Oh, wow. That's yeah. insane to think about. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so you, you know, you play, you know, you sing in a lot of bands, but also you've played guitar in bands and stuff like that. When did you start playing guitar and was a guitar your first instrument or did you play anything else? Uh, no, uh, guitar. I knew this kid named Sean, Sean Beeman, who was a character. He was so funny. And, uh, I was like, can you play guitar? And he was like, yeah, I've got this crappy series 10 guitar. I'm like, and he just loaned me the guitar and I just never gave it back to him. Like he just... <laughs> He never asked for it. And um, we ended up being in a band together, but he was the bassist and I just sort of taught myself to play. And by the time I was 18, 19, um, I was getting into hardcore. And I remember thinking like, man, if I could just play all the songs in the Minor Threat 7-inch, I would never need to get any better. That, was, that would be all I'd ever need to know. That was like the epitome, the end all be all of music, you know? Like I just need to know those power chords and, so that, that was basically like my standard from that point on. Um, uh, so I had a Series 10 guitar, which I did not know how to tune. And I could, you know, get it kind of close, I think. And there was this Canadian band, the Neos. And they put out a 14-song 7-inch for, for their second record. Yeah. And it, in the record, it, it shows you how to play their songs. No way. Which is, which is amazing. So I was wow. able to learn how to play one of their songs that Charles Bronson ended up 
uh, recording. Was it? Uh, I'm assuming it was probably like tabs. It was like their own kind of tabs, though. It wasn't like standard tabs. It was weird. Interesting. Yeah. And you uh, figured it out? <laughs> I figured it out, yeah. And you could barely hear the guitar on the record, but um, <laughs> they, <laughs> it's so poorly recorded. But yeah, yeah. the song is called uh, Just Like All the Rest. Okay, yeah. yeah. Oh, man, that's yeah. awesome. So then what was the first band you did? It was called The Rejected. Okay. Which was horrible. It was a horrible band. Of course. And it was with uh, the hometown skater kids that were into like Pennywise and stuff. Bad religion. And uh, they were really getting into like the ska core thing. And I was not feeling it. But they wanted to do this sort of uh, rancid type shit. Uh-huh. And I was just like, ah, oh, you know, I was listening to like Deep Wound by then. You know, I was like, I don't want to sound like that. You know, that stuff sucks. But um, yeah, you got, you got to go with what, what's around you. I, I yeah. feel like that's, that's the classic, like first band thing where, you know, we've talked about it on the show before, but it's like, you know, it's why a lot of people's first bands, it's like, you got the kid who likes ska on drums. You like, you got the Hesher on bass. You got, it's just, you, you get whoever totally. is around you who can actually play instruments and the music yeah, is the, always a mess. <laughs> the drummer had like a ponytail and a mustache, you know, it was, it was a mess. But uh, we did actually play. We we played with FYP, but the drummer oh, wow. actually he actually bailed. And uh, so I was, you know, I was friendly with Todd through skateboarding from FYP. And so I was like, "Yeah, we're supposed to play with you, man." But our our drummer he's flaked. He didn't come. And so like, well, fuck it, I'll play drums. And I was like, "Really? Right now?" He had never heard us. Oh my he was god! Like, yeah, just keep just point. You know, like one or two. If it's slow, one, two. You know, fast. I remember standing there with the mic and giving him hand signals behind the drum kit as this crowd's watching us play. And uh, somehow we got through it, man. Somehow we got through it. That was our last show. So You don't say. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. I love the one-two situation. Oh, yeah. That guy, he was amazing. Todd was amazing. Wait, was FYP from Illinois? Oh, no. They were from... uh, they're from California, like Orange County. That's what I thought. Yeah. How did, yeah. so wait, how did you know him? You said you knew him through skateboarding. Like, how does that, yeah. what does oh, that mean? Okay. Yeah. In 91, he did a skate demo with some other pros. And uh, at the skate park near where I grew up, I, I would go to with friends. Cause I was a big skater, by the way. And um, when he came, I already knew that he did his own music. So when, uh, in 1990, this, this video called Risk It came out, a Santa Cruz Wheels video. And his part in it is so crazy. Like, he's a fucking madman. And he's he's just, like, lighting off fireworks and, like, hitting golf balls into people's yards and just, like, setting shit on fire. He's like He was a maniac. And I knew that it was his own one-man band playing to his part. It was fast hardcore. So when he came to to the skate park i was like hey did you bring any of your records and his eyes lit up and he goes yeah i i did and um from that point on we became pen pals or rather like i bothered him through, yeah <laughs> through through letters and i would call him and uh he's very gracious very polite guy that's a really cool story and <laughs> so wait do you think that FYP, do do you think the FYP maybe got a specific fan base based off of him just being this pro skater? This is something I didn't realize about them. I don't know. I think he got out of skateboarding around the time the band 
took off. He kind of switched. Oh, interesting. But he was an amazing pro. He was such a burly vert skater. He could do these insane like 10 foot 540s. And, you know, he. there was one contest where he peed his pants during his run deliberately. He was just never serious. But like if he wanted to be, yeah. he was gnarly. He's just, wow. he was just a, a goofy, goofy guy. This yeah, is so it's, funny. It's that extremely angsty, like almost like pre jackass skate skate. Yeah, like I'm refused. Yeah, like I'm not taking it seriously. I don't care. I don't care if I get like last place. I don't care. Um, so you talked about that first show. So where uh like what do you remember other than just the one two thing? Like, was it something that like when you were were you nervous? Were you scared? Was it like something that just excited you that you knew you wanted to keep doing after playing that show? Well, I knew it wasn't our first show. The first show was a different experience in my hometown, but this was at the Fireside Bowl, the first time I'd ever been there. And uh, the, this band, Mukilteo Fairies, opened. Um, and they were from Olympia. And they were this uh, super fast hardcore band. And seeing them play, they were serious, you know? And they just attacked the crowd and they were playing 30 second songs and the singer was a maniac. He was just knocking in into everybody. And they had this girl guitarist with pink hair. And I just never saw anything. He's wearing like a bowling shirt. It was just like, this seemed like the real deal. I'm not going to listen to this other crap anymore. And I don't want to be in the rejected. I saw this and I was like, I want to do that. I want, I want to just, I don't need to look the part. I just want to be a great band. I just want to be a powerful, explosive, fast band that had like, you know, actual things to say. And, uh, you know, like, like, like a sense of, of what we're actually doing instead of just like, Oh, well, here's a Skakor song. And, uh, well, this will be like our funny song and blah, blah, blah. Right. I just wanted a defined identity, a sense of purpose to what we were doing. So shortly thereafter, um, I I'd started meeting people in college and one of the guys I met was this guy, John Aarons, who played bass in his local band from the DeKalb area. And so we started Charles Bronson when I went back to my sophomore year of college in 94. Yeah, I was curious, like how how early on Charles Bronson actually started, like if it was one of your first bands, because obviously it's I would assume it would have been when you were, you know, early into college. 19. Yeah, I was 19. So it was my second year. Uh, I was in the rejected the first year, but we were just sort of long distance. I lived an hour away from those guys. We didn't really talk. I didn't really have a lot in common with them. And we, you know, it very easily drifted apart, you know. Looking for an extraordinary coffee? Look no further than Heartwork Coffee. With eight years of excellence and proudly roasting in the vibrant city of San Diego, California, Visit heartworkcoffeebar.com to explore a wide range of single origin and blended coffees to suit your taste preference. On a personal note, co-founder Rob Moran has played in so many bands that have inspired me personally, like Unbroken and Some Girls, for example, and it's been amazing watching Heartwork thrive all these years. The coffee is amazing, and I'm thrilled to support this company. Once again, visit heartworkcoffeebar.com to place an order. That is H-E-A-R-T work coffeebar.com. Were you always just excited to play or did you ever have stage fright? Do you ever like, how do you feel when you go to perform these days? 
I always had stage fright and I hate performing and I don't think I'll do it again. Um, I always, I would feel like a sense of trembling before getting on stage. It was like panic anxiety. I was going to get really hurt. And uh, it was a similar feeling to when I would skate because after I, I broke my arm really bad skateboarding and I would start to feel that sort of uh, that sensation, like don't do it. You know what I mean? So that sort of carried over into playing where I didn't actually like, being on stage, I didn't feel like I was a performer. I didn't, I don't know. I didn't, it didn't come natural. So I think over the years I had to just try and learn to override that. And um, early on, if I watch videos of like the earlier shows, where I never faced the crowd, I just didn't like it. I didn't feel commanding, but other bands after that, even if um, I faced the crowd and, you know, spread my legs apart or jumped around or whatever. Yeah. Um, I just never felt a rapport. I didn't actually want to be in that position. I, you know, it's it's kind of strange that I just sort of found myself in that in that role. But it was nothing that I aspired toward. If that makes sense. And I'm much you- more I'm much more introverted. Right? I just would rather be alone and not engage. And the fact that you obviously like kept doing it and kept doing it. Do you think in your mind you were like either? well, this is what I'm doing, so I have to keep doing it. Or maybe if I keep doing it, I'll learn to figure it out and I'll learn to actually like it. Maybe somewhere in between where I just felt like, I think I'm actually pretty good at it. You know, I, I think I can do it, you know? But I, when I see bands on stage, like, hey, give a round of applause for blah, blah, blah. Like, we got merch in the back and yeah. hey, how you fucking doing? I could just never, I could never take it serious. Do you think it's because you had the, you know, you, you came up on, on the hair metal, which was like the most like big version of that. And you're, and like, maybe that was be. what your expectation had to be. And you're like, well, this is not how I'm feeling. Yeah. Like I just can't be Vince Neil. I can't get up there and start you know, talking about, <laughs> um, you know, I just, I just can't do I, whatever. I just, I guess I grew up cynical. You know, I grew up a Gen Xer. You know, I just I looked at everything as like stupid and corny and cheesy. And, you know, what's so uh, fascinating is cool. As like, you know, your stage presence and how you're describing it, the back to the audience or whatever. Like, it's funny how that almost became or it did become sort of like a way for punk bands to perform. You know, the sort of like nihilistic, like antisocial. We're playing on the floor, but everyone's facing the drummer, like kind of a thing. Where yeah. you know. I think a lot of people don't realize how much that is spawned from actually just discomfort as opposed to wanting to look a specific way. Yeah. Like I'm not an entertainer. I'm not going to entertain you. Uh, I'm sorry. I just can't, I can't fake it. Uh, um, I'm sorry. I can't, I don't know how to be fake, but I think over time I just learned like a good band has to do these things. So I'm sorry. If you want to be a good band, you have to kind of own up and take command and do it. Otherwise, you'll just be boring because there's most bands suck. Most bands are boring or it's like they, they make a good record and you see them live and it doesn't hold up. It's like such a disappointment. So it's like, well, you have to be better than the record. You have to somehow transcend that limitation. You have to be incredible. Yeah. There's no option. Otherwise, don't do it. You know, go learn to knit or fucking play video games or something. Do something else. I don't know. After you perform, does it take you like, do you have to find yourself calming down does it because i'm just thinking about a memory where um so touche played with failures yeah. uh out in i think it was ventura or something like that uh, it was a galita, galita. I remember Kat McClar- yeah something like One that of those yeah. Sounds, yeah 
And I mean, we were so excited because we're obviously fans of yours and fans of Will's and, and all of that. And uh, but I remember after after your set, um, catching you as you were just sort of like seemingly like maybe outside, just like sitting against the wall, having that like calm down situation. And obviously, you just played a very like hyperactive set or whatever. But it you know, I clocked that. I was like, I can't tell if he's also just needing to like get over whatever just happened, you know, like that sort of mental calm calmness. <laughs> <laughs> at that show i hit my hand on something like they had like a like a silk screen press or something in the room that they moved oh, out of shit. the way yeah or something and i whacked my hand on it so hard and i was in pain the whole time fuck but uh but when we when we played i would just push it to the brink i mean i would um i couldn't breathe i don't i don't know it was it was just sort of a blackout sure. that's how that band just sort of played yeah uh, yeah was that was that like kind of the most active band that you had? Was that like the last most active band that you did? Like, obviously, you've been in a bunch yeah. of bands, but like in the sense of like toured. Uh, the Oath was probably the uh, the biggest in, in that regard. Uh, but the, the the failure stuff, I I, th I think I looked at it like, okay, I'm in my 30s now, and um, I don't know how much longer I I can do this. So let's try and push it as hard as we can, and do a lot. Didn't really work out, um, mostly because of me. Actually, I I think I inadvertently derailed the band for taking too long to finish the second album, just with everything going on in my life at the time. I just thought, um, I don't know how to write lyrics anymore. It's like, I, I reached a point where like, I don't even know what I want to say. I, I, it, I reached a sort of dark point and, um, in hindsight, I'm glad I, you know, I was able to follow through on it and, and do the record. But, um, after that we, we didn't play anymore. Sure. Yeah. And so uh, we just went our separate ways. Um, I continue to work with Will, though. So, of course. Yeah. 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 Uh, what about. So, you mentioned Charles Bronson started uh, around the end of the last. The, the rejected band. Was Charles, Bronson, <laughs> was, was Charles Bronson the first band that you recorded with, or did that other band record as well? We did record. We did a four track recording that I still have. Wow! Uh, and that, that was that was my uh, that was my first attempt, like singing. Uh, okay. Do a mic, then recording, like a take. Um, and then we did go to the studio and we did one song for a compilation that came out. Um, and it actually is a pretty good song. It's a pretty catchy song. It's 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 a stupid, silly song, but you know for what it is. Are but, you? Yeah. Are you someone that enjoys the the studio process, or do you also have a negative feeling towards recording? I think it depends. I like playing guitar in the studio. Singing is absolute torture. I don't know how you feel about it, but it's it was agony. It's not the most yeah. fun thing. No. Yeah, a lot because of it, lot of you know, it's a like, lot of potential headaches and just yeah, like concerned if it's if it's right, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, because it's like you've got this vague sense of what it should sound like in your mind and you're going off your gut feeling. And when it doesn't sound that way or it doesn't give you the feeling you want, it's like panic time. It's like, well, then what do I do? I mean, I thought I was doing it right. And take after take, your voice just wears down. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it's very easily, <laughs> you can very easily ruin the whole session. Um, we sort of worked that out just later on because we – like when recording with Will, I could just go up and we do one day at a time and knock out a few songs and go back home, sure. take the bus back to New York and we go back the next weekend. So 
but in those early days, like with Charles Bronson, it was, my voice was, um, was different. You know, it was higher pitched. Yeah. And I just, I think I had, uh, more tenacity. I think I could just scream like all day long and not really lose my voice. So because we were practicing all the time, you know, it was, it wasn't a big deal to just go and sing 20 songs were, <laughs> maybe it was kind of a big deal, but like to do a seven inch, for example, we did it all in one, one go, you know, right. song, 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 one take. With uh, something I was curious of is, were you, was there already like a lot of bands in your area? Were you guys having to go to Chicago a lot to like find other like-minded bands? Because what I, you know, when I think of like DeKalb, for example, like I think the only band that I know other than Charles Bronson from there is like Tar. I think Tar was from there originally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we lived in the house with some of those guys that, that had once lived there. Yeah. Oh, wow. Like the, like yeah. the punk house that just can continues and just yep. more people move in and move out. Okay. Yeah. 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 Cause uh, you know, some older guys came to one of our shows in the basement and was like, Oh man, I came here like 15 years ago and saw tar dude. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I, to this day, I've never heard him. So it didn't really, didn't really mean a whole lot, but I'm like, Oh, okay. Well that makes sense. Cause you know, it's a student ghetto. It's, it's a crappy, crappy yeah. neighborhood and you can get away yeah. with basically anything. Uh, uh but yeah, so but yeah, there there were there were other bands, yeah. Okay, I was curious if you like kind of felt like you had to almost create your own scene, or if that just kind of happened on its own, like organically. Uh, I did feel a sense that um, we should have like our own our own scene, that we should have our own regional sound or style. But we were not the first. Los Crudos really was the first. They sure. were the first serious band that I had ever seen. Where maybe apart from. Uncle Teo Ferries, they came out and they were talking about like big topics where it seemed like the music played only a secondary role or as much of a role as like their actual message. I had never really thought of music in that way, that it would be this sort of platform to, to talk about like your community or whatever. So I remember uh, being at the first Crudo show I saw. It was early 94 at a bar down the street from Wrigley Field and, uh, you know, Martin's talking and uh, he's like, this song is a, is about fear. And, and this drunk puck in the crowd is like, fuck yeah, beer. And uh, <laughs> that was the sort of attitude, you know, where people, they weren't ready to hear it. You yeah. know? They were there to get wasted and to go crazy and let loose. And I was never about that. I wanted substance, you know, even if I didn't necessarily share the views of Los Crudos, we saw them as, you know, maybe part of a, uh, you know, a growing community that, you know, we could fit. I mean, obviously they were older than us and <laughs> much better musicians, but um, uh, them and MK Ultra, yeah, uh, along with us, we, I think we formed this triumvirate of bands that I think began to solidify the Chicago scene. And the, there were suddenly dozens of bands, you know, uh, but didn't go as far. But nonetheless, we're always playing. There was always shows. Um, something I found interesting is, so it's like you guys put out that demo in like 94. And then in 95, you guys did, I think it was like the, unless, you know, dates are incorrect, but it seemed like you guys did like the self-titled Seven Inch and then also the split with Spaz. And both of those came out, you know, Spaz being a California band, Six Weeks being a California label. Um, what was your connection there? And how did you, you know, with Six Weeks, right? That's like mm -hmm. they were a... Uh, California label like how did how did your music all of a sudden get out there and like hook up with those labels and those people well I knew Dan from Spaz and um I was also a big fan of what was happening out there musically 
And, you know, he was deeply connected to the Slappaham scene. And he was coming off of, you know, being inspired by bands like Crossed Out and Infest, who had already come and gone. And those guys weren't around. So it was like they just ceased existing, like they just vanished. So in the wake of that, Spaz started, but bands like Capitalist Casualties had begun in the early 90s and it just kept going and were getting really good. And Manus the Bastard was still going. And um, so we just thought, okay, well, we'll send the tape out to all these labels that we like and we'll see who bites. We sent it to um, just a few. I think I remember sending it to Chris Dodge from, from Slappingham and he never responded. And we sent it to Jeff from six weeks who played bass in Capitals casualties and sang. And he sent us back in a you know, super excited letter like, Oh yeah, we want to put it out. We want to yeah. do it. So we were incredibly honored because I thought they were such a great band and, Totally. I actually had had gone out to the West Coast with John, and we stayed with Dan and got to see Spaz and Capitals Casualties play, and just amazing powerhouse band. It's, it's sad that two of the guys are no longer with us, but um, yeah, I, I felt extremely lucky to be sort of roped in with that, even though we were just, though we were just like these teenagers from from Illinois. You know, we had no other connection than through Dan, who sort of vouched for us to say like, "Oh yeah, those those guys are cool. You should you should do the record." I, I think that's what happened. And was that self-titled seven? Was that actually the first seven inch or was it the split? I'm assuming it was. The, that, that was, was the that split. was first. Yeah. Okay. And then shortly, shortly after uh, our friend Aaron Aspinwall joined on second guitar. And uh, that's when we, I think really started to develop our, our sound, you know, that would become like the band style. Sure. Um, yeah. Did uh, like, how did it feel getting that first record you know like getting you know getting the seven inch for the first time was it was that an exciting experience for you guys it was surreal you know to hold this thing in your hands that you're singing on it uh, there were no words at the time you know so 19 years old yeah maybe 20 20 yeah um yeah it was uh it was a big deal you know and we got to play with him actually in, in san francisco in early 96 so that was a huge deal and it's funny we got out there and they're like hey we thought you guys were like 14 <laughs> no man <laughs> we're, like, we're like oh okay well oh, that's cool you know no big deal <laughs> you're like, you're like should i be offended by that do you think that we were just a bunch of little kids playing this stuff like yeah this? just like it was total hacks but you know we, were, yeah. we had this energy or whatever um, yeah. <laughs> you guys you know and you guys put out a, quite a lot of stuff like in the short term that you know the band was actually together um yeah was uh so when you guys ended up doing the, you know, the ten, the youth attack 10 inch that obviously ended up being on Martin's label. Like, was that like a full circle situation where it was like, Oh, this is the guy that, you know, kind of showed us that there was more to this music and now we get to put out something. Was that like an exciting stamp of approval? Oh yeah. Yeah. Everyone looked up to him and he was so supportive. You know, he was, he was so supportive and he was funny. Um, he, he would always be at our shows and he'd always have us over, you know, just always hanging out. Very sociable guy at the time. Yeah. And um, we all got along. You know, the guys in MK Ultra were just like us, but they were a little bit older, super down to earth and funny Midwestern guys. Uh, everyone was like, you know, a little bit vulgar and always had jokes and, you know, yeah. it was great. Um, but- <laughs> I know there was also like, you know, it came out also on Coalition, which is a label out of the Netherlands. I'm curious how that relationship started. Like, oh, okay. did, yeah. did Charles Bronson tour Europe? No, right? Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. No, we were bro- broken up by then. Um, totally. 
Uh, so first of all, um, Martine came up to us after one of the shows and was like, I want to do the LP because I'd, I'd been saying like, oh, we get, we have to do one before we break up. And he's like, I want to do it. You know, he's like, I kind of want to do like the Chicago, like exclaim type thing. You know, I want to do the MK Ultra album, which unfortunately never happened. Um, but he's like, hey, I just want to have like the whole scene represented on like Waramata. And uh, we, you know, we were into it. And it's funny when uh, we went on our last bit of shows, like on the East Coast and we toured out there, Chris Dodge was like, hey, uh, I don't know if anyone's asked you yet, but would you be down to do the LP, doing the LP on uh, Slap a Ham? And I'm like, wow, you know? <laughs> yeah, all the things you wanted in one in one moment. Uh, you know, it's funny because he rejected our demo, but he, he offered to do the LP, but we'd already agreed, so... It, you know, maybe in hindsight, it, it Slapham ended, so I don't know if it really mattered. But you know, to be among the pantheon of like no comment and totally and crossed out and all these fans, I mean, that would have been like the ultimate. But you know, we were loyal to our friends, and um, we just thought it's like you know, we don't need we don't need that acclaim. We're, we're breaking up anyway. Well, you know, we want to be on Langoramada. It's fine. Yeah, but um, yeah. So um, after that sold out, I think you know. It, he pressed 3000 records it sold out and he never repressed it. And then I became friendly with the guys from coalition, Marcel and your And, um, they asked to put it out. I have no idea how many copies they press. <laughs> Nate Wilson and I were thinking like it had to have been 10 or 15,000. Like I have no idea. Yeah. I don't really, I don't really care, but it was everywhere. It was every that record anywhere. <laughs> And for a while, and they were making all these different covers and all these special editions. And we were just like, okay, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how that stuff works when you, when you, <laughs> when you, when you don't pay attention to accounting or ask about accounting, you're like, well, I, I guess it's a, at least people can get it, I guess. Yeah. Like send me a copy. I don't know. Yeah. Could I have personals? <laughs> of that? Um, so yeah. I was curious. Cause that was, you know, I, I, I wonder if you agree the best sounding songs from your guys catalog as well from the from that 10 inch um you yeah. guys recorded with a guy named uh bob is it similjan yeah um yeah. was that your first time recording with him yeah yeah it was he was awesome yeah what was that experience uh, like well first of all we, we were going to record with this guy chuck yuchita who i think disliked us like he thought we were annoying and hated like, the music actively disliked you <laughs> i think so He's, he was mean. Sure. He's, <laughs> he, uh, he pawned us off on, on to Bob. He goes, this other guy can do, do what you want. I'm too busy. And we're like, okay. And so we showed up to Bob's studio uh, in Chicago, and it was just a storefront with sheets over the windows. And it was uh, very stripped down. But we liked him right away. He was much nicer than Chuck. And had a respect for what we were doing. Like he heard us play through some songs and was like, okay, I think I get it. I, I think I get it. And so, um, yeah, we just, we blazed through the recording, I think in, um, I don't know, four or five hours, like 20 songs down one guitar overdub. And that was it. Oh my God. I didn't do the, I didn't do the vocals, but um, yeah, once the levels were set, we just, we were so practiced at that point that we had just, we were ready to go. We just blazed through it. Right. I don't think it was a lot of work on his end until we did the vocals, which I did over the course of like a week. Got it. Got it. 
uh, I was curious when it came, you know, it's probably a question you've been asked before, but like, um, was the, was just the name Youth Attack something that you just really wanted to hold on to? And that's why you named the label that? Like, was there something about that that um, felt like it was worth naming a label for? Well, first of all, the idea for Youth Attack was Aaron Aspinwall's. There was a time when Charles Bronson was um, considering breaking up and we were going to go two, in two separate directions. And Aaron had this idea of like, let's, let's stop Charles Bronson and start a new band that'll just carry on with sound, but we'll call it Youth Attack. And I just always liked that idea, or I just like the name rather. Yeah. And I just thought, well, it, 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 it embodies what we're about. And, uh, you know, I guess he was okay with us using it as a title, but when the time came to reissue the music, I thought it was the perfect continuation of just sort of keeping that spirit alive. Totally. Of using it as, as the label name. I'm curious, uh, you know, as you've been doing this label now for what, like 23, did it start in 2000? 99. Okay. 99. Yeah. Um, I was curious at this point, like what, is there any specific lessons that you've really learned from doing this label this amount of time? I mean, like you're, you know, you're so hands-on, you do all the artwork. So much of it is very DIY, like very like intricate and all of that. Um, is there something that you wish you knew early on that you know now when it comes to doing the label? Uh, well, first of all, it's a money pit. You know, you'll never make anything off it really. Uh, so you have to know that going in. And it really is mostly a thankless affair and it's painful. You know, you like, you, you strive to do something, you do your best and it doesn't come back the way you want it. I think it's made me a better designer, but um, you know, you work with bands and it's fraught with difficulties. And even if they're your friends, you get into spats and disagreements about what, what it should be. You know, it's complicated and I'm not a natural businessman. I don't like the business end. So, um, I haven't put anything out in two years, but I'm working on so much on the back end that's about mm -hmm. to come out. So, you know, I just think like now I'm at the point where if we have kids, well, we, we're about to have a, a baby in December, but ideally I would just pass this on if they're willing yeah, to just keep it going forever. Cause I think I never thought long-term so if I were to offer any advice to anybody, it would just just start thinking more in the sense of like a legacy. Like you you want something to just live indefinitely. That's a good goal. Instead of just like living in the moment and putting out whatever and not really caring and giving up after the first defeat. Mm -hmm. I think that the, the nature of it is so fraught with, uh, with problems and complications that you just have to accept that, that that's just built into the mechanism of it. If you're going to run a label... I don't know. It, it depends because, you know, it's like I'm aging out of it. I think I, I'm like aging out in the sense that I don't have peers now that are playing like they used to. Everyone's like getting married or having kids or whatever. But if you're able to maintain a connection to people that are able to constantly produce, then that I think is the driving engine. That's something you should try to latch onto. If you, if you sense that someone has the ability to just produce easily, then work with them. You know, if they're easy to work with, I would just encourage them as much as you can. And thankfully, there's been a lot of people on my end that I, that have been in that position. My friend James Trejo was one of these people. Jeff Jalen continues to be one of these people in his 50s. He's still pumping it out, you know, so it doesn't necessarily have to end. And I think when I was younger, I used to just sort of regard 
aging is this terrible process where you just become lame and your ideas dry up and all your music sucks. But I don't feel that way anymore. Um, I just think that, I don't know, the, the times have changed. You know, when I was a kid, it, it would have been unthinkable to think of uh, like Minor Threat like continuing on or any of these classic bands getting back together or making anything of value. It just seems like once you hit a certain age, you just plateaued and you were boring. Yeah. Yeah. I think all that is is very well said. I was curious, um, how often are bands discovered through people sending you stuff? Or is like, is it more often than not just always people that you know? Like, have there been many bands on Youth Attack that were just like people submitting a demo? Yeah, I would say none. Yeah. Don't 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 do blind submissions. It, it, there's something about the nature of it. It's a turnoff. And almost, you know, 99% of what people send me is just horrible or something that like in no way, shape or form fits into what I'm doing. It's like they didn't even do the research to grasp what we're going for. But I also think too, and I talked with um, Matt Domino from Infest about this. I really do think that the sensibilities cultivated in the nineties to create a certain riff style are going extinct where there just aren't people that either have the willingness or the capability to play that way. It's like, it's a lost language. It's fading into the distance and you can see it because there's nothing vital that's coming to replace it. Like there's no new band that fills that spot that gets everyone's heads turning and thinking like, Oh, I'm on board, you know, let's go. Instead, you're just, you're getting bands doing like Budweiser endorsements and just cater, catering to more like the political stuff where the, the music and the art itself is just in the background. It doesn't even matter. It's an afterthought. So as a craftsman, I'm more focused on this. Like, yeah, you say, say what you got to say, even if I don't agree with it. But show me that you can actually write something good. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm willing to disagree with you at this point. Maybe not. But... Uh, <laughs> I think <laughs> I'm just not hearing the quality. Yeah. I'm just not hearing the quality. Yeah, I get it. I think the genre is dying. Um, you know, you guys have, you've made uh, a lot of very tongue in cheek, random, like, you know, things that you've sold on the web store. And I was curious, just like out of knowing how hard it is to source certain things when you have an idea. I was curious what your favorite random item that you've made and what was the hardest one to source? Um, I remember the vomit bag was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, so like, did you have to like figure out through airlines? Like who do you guys use? Who's your vomit bag guy? And how I do I so. screen printed? <laughs> yeah. I remember having to, to do some work to find those. Um, we also did a self-help kit, which was just a noose. <laughs> right. Um, the hardest one was uh, the razor blade for the jerk booth. We did a jerk booth razor blade. Yeah. And uh, it was an acid etched razor blade. So it said jerk booth on it. Yeah. And uh, my friend James Rockin in LA, he he did them. And he, he had to stop making them because um, the fumes were like making him sick. I bet. Holy yeah. shit. And he and he's like he could he's like I can't control the the emulsion or like the chemicals or whatever that eat into the the steel yeah so they were all running together so 
uh, Jesse Sains, the singer of Hoax, has the one jerk booth razor blade <laughs> that wow. ever got made. <laughs> yeah. Before it could have potentially uh, killed somebody. Yeah. That's incredible. Yep, yep. We uh, also did a. Uh, oh, go ahead. No, please, please. Oh, I was going to say we also did a nightmare pillow, which at the time you could get. Um, oh, it was like yeah, it was like a, like a pillow. It had, like I had the sound box inside of it, right, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. it had a little MP3 player, and so okay. we had. Uh, the ancestors three album on it and like the purpose of it was to like induce nightmares and we made our own pillowcase to go over it right so what so, did you do did you like sew the thing into like the mp3 player into the pillowcase like how did you do no, that you could get them they, they came from china they were like you know like a hundred dollars each and i think i sold them for like a hundred and ten dollars right of course yeah <laughs> why, why make profit you know well, i'm like who's gonna buy this right but, exactly <laughs> But you've cultivated but, such a base that, of course, there's going to be at least three people that want that. Yeah, they did sell. Yeah. Uh, they did sell. And I, I kept that pillow for a long time. Hey there. Do you need to get some merch printed? My incredible sponsors over at Anchorfish Printing has a great deal going on right now. You can get 100 soft style shirts for only 499 bucks. Do the math. That's a great deal. For details, email michael at anchorfishprinting.com. You can also visit anchorfishprinting.com and see what else they have to offer. They are a one-stop shop for all your merch needs. And don't forget to mention the first ever podcast when you place your order. Just so I make sure I cover my bases on getting all the first stuff out of here. What was actually the first tour you did? Was that with Charles Bronson? Uh, our first tour was actually the first international tour um, with the Oath. We toured four weeks in Europe, and uh, that was in the fall of 2000. Okay. And I'd, I'd never been around these guys for that long, and I wasn't prepared for the cultural clash that we were in store for, but I soon realized that the Dutch think very differently. They carry on very differently than Americans. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm very much American. Yeah. So there was definitely some butting heads. We came out on top of it. And I, of course, love those guys. They're so funny. But uh, were they maybe because I don't realize, were they people that were involved with Coalition? Because obviously the same label, same. Yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. The guitar player. Yeah. Yeah. So we stayed with him and uh, total character. He's huge, too. He's like six foot seven. I mean, he's a giant. And he's got this deep voice. He's he's hilarious. He's a total character. Elliot, who plays drums in my band, who's a massive fan of of you know Youth Attack and Charles Bronson, all that sort of stuff. He, I was like, is there anything you've ever wanted to ask Mark? And he was like, I'm curious how the Tony Hawk thing came to be. Oh, getting your song yeah. in the Tony Hawk thing. It was just a Steve Aoki thing. He was like, Hey, Tony Hawk's doing a new game. You want to be in it? And we're like, Uh, yeah, I, I guess. I mean, like, what does it entail? Right. I think they paid us um, $4,000 and Steve kept half. And then we used it on, on tour for like travel expenses. Sure. It, it was just a thing that uh, I never played the video game. I never even saw it in the game. Yeah. Um, I and I did meet Tony Hawk before, but I didn't. Uh, it wasn't because of the, of the band of through skating. Was that an exciting moment? Oh, my God. Being such a skate yeah. kid. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he's the... Um, First person I ever saw with a cell phone. That was like in 93. Wow. It was one of those those big bricks. The big you know? bricks, like the Saved by the Bell fucking shoes. 
that had a antenna coming out the top. Yeah, and this was like in '93 when you know he's like the Bones Brigade had long departed. Yeah, and I think people just lost interest in skating. But I, you know, was all about. It. I, I just I love Tony to this day. I, I love Tony. So yeah, I'd like to uh, to talk to you a little bit about art stuff, obviously. Um, and I'm kind of curious, like what drives your artistic motivation in the sense of like you know you you're you do ink stuff you do collage all of that sort of all of those sort of different things and i'm curious like when you wake up and you decide you want to do something artistic like what what drives you to choose a specific medium or even i can tie that to like if it comes to maybe designing someone's art for their record or something like that like do you know pretty quickly what style of art you want to pursue when it comes to choosing different projects yeah, I think so. You know, often if it's a record, bands will will tell me what what they're looking for. So um, I can go in any number of directions. It's um, it's not really an issue to me. I, I just think of it basically the same process. So um, how often are you choose? How often are you making art for yourself versus making art for for? someone else's project or your own maybe you know like youth attack related thing like do you do you have the motivation still to make art for yourself yes um i'm i just did a drawing print for the vacuum based out of minneapolis so i made this big drawing it took two years to make and then they they made prints of it and sold them um but that was the last thing i was able to do living here my living costs are so expensive here in arizona that um I basically have to work nonstop to, to survive. So I've, I've become, you know, I think I'm okay with um, just sort of expressing myself through bands for the time being. Right. Like I, I do have ideas for what I want to make, but for now I'm just making record art. And that has, that has been the case now for two straight years where it's just been relentless. I have, I have not stopped, but, um, I do feel that urge. Yeah. Yeah. I it just, I, I think about that often. The guy who plays guitar in my band, he's a graphic designer as well. And like he, but he's someone who can paint, he can draw, he can do all this stuff. But like one day, many years ago, he told me, he was just like, yeah, I don't have the urge to ever do anything to express myself. Like, it's just like, it's become such a job that like, that's where my brain is always at. It's just like, you know, making something for someone else kind of a deal. And I was curious what, your relationship was at this point as someone who's made a lot of stuff for a lot of other people. Well, it's, it's, it's not too different because you're still expressing yourself through totally. their band, you know, mm-hmm. um, because if someone else were to make the cover, it would be totally different. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to think too, that I can use record covers as a, as a medium unto itself where I can foster my own process record to record over the span of years and I think looking back, I see the connections now between them and like what I'm actually going for and the commentary that's going on within the images. Is there a difference between getting commission from a band that is not on, obviously like not going to be coming out on Youth Attack or something versus something coming out on Youth Attack? Like, is, is there a different approach for you? No, no, it's the same. Um, but I think over the course of time, I just prefer to work with new bands that are starting out and to really give them a chance versus working with a bigger band that comes with like a list of demands Mm. and they tend to be less fun to deal with. 
Sure. Not everybody. Um, Full of Hell, for example, is, it was nothing but a joy to work with. Um, but in general, I prefer the upstarts. And I think that's just where my mind has always been as someone that's like from an underdog position or the kind of outsider, the outlier, where yeah. I, I, I feel a sympathy for these people that are trying to get their thing out there and to make an impression with it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I Something that I really enjoyed from, you know, I think being older as well and just knowing what it's like to have to work with other people, especially if it's like a cold call situation. But I appreciated when you and I worked together, how a part of your deal was like, you get one revision kind of a deal. And I was like, that's sick. I back that. Like, yeah. You know, I've worked with people that think they are art directing me and I'm like, that's not going to work. That's not good. Yeah. I, that's what I figured that what inspired you having that as a part of your deal. Like I was like, I get it. Cause you can get people who, you know, want to just tell you what it's like, well, if you wanted this, why don't you just make it kind of a deal? Exactly. Like you're not putting me on like a pair of gloves and you know, I'm not your puppet to make what you want because I don't care about your ideas. And well, not in the sense that um, they don't matter, but it's like, I can't read your thoughts. Um, I'm not a mind reader. Right. So you just have to trust me to do my job. And I think I'm pretty good actually at interpreting a sound into visuals. That's actually, I think, the the essence of what I do. Do you have, yeah. this might be tough. It might be like choosing kids. I don't know. But like, do you have a record that comes to your mind as like the, your favorite thing that you've done? Well, I think the Trumpeting Ecstasy cover is probably the most widely seen. Yeah. And um, that's definitely you know, one of my favorites. Again, that was, that was a cover I made in five minutes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's just. I was like, oh yeah, okay, this is done. Next. That's so great. And, um, it's funny how like uh, people's like favorite songs or favorite anything could just be the thing that comes is is super quick and is done is super yeah. fast, you know? Totally. It just happened. It was almost like fate steered my hands. I don't know. And um when I sent it to the band, they're like, Oh, this is cool, but uh would, would you mind photocopying it? We wanna we start we want sort of like a grainy look. And I was like, no. Don't photocopy it. Leave it as is, you know, because I'd begun to think of um, my influence from, from film and how it, it uh, filtered into my visuals. I'm like, just think of this as a still from a movie, you know, and like yeah. your music is the soundtrack to the movie, you know? Absolutely. Think of it this way, like, there's a narrative going on that we're building and it's a parallel to the lyrics and the themes in your music. And they're all sort of colliding together to form this tapestry of the album itself. And, th and that gives people something to think about, you know, and the realism was inherent. It was, it was, it was crucial to that project where like, if it's a demo tape or whatever, yeah, we'll photocopy it for this. I wanted it to feel like real life. And that idea I think has developed since then. So that was 2016 and you know, I'm still making, you know, still making work that totally. uh, is, is built on that idea. Um, and then I want to ask you about uh, your first art show. Was your first art show the one that happened in LA in 2009? Um, yeah. The Halo one? That was your first one? What was that experience like? Oh, it was great. Yeah, it was a, a gallery called... Um, what was it called? Uh, I don't remember. Shoot. Hope. Anyway. It was yeah. Hope Gallery. Okay, there yeah. you go. 
God, it's been so long now. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and those were, ink, um, and those were, you know, you taught, you discussed how long it took you to, to make this ink drawing for um, the one you just, you, the one you just created. Um, and those were all ink drawings. Were those, was that work that you had been working on for a long, long time? Cause. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, that was two, two or three years, I think. Yeah. Three took three years to make those. And, uh, you know, we painted the walls black, we had candles going. It was cool. We had, but I made a soundtrack for the show and we put it out on vinyl and played the record in the gallery. Wow. So it was just you know, this chaotic, chaotic environment. Yeah. How long did yeah. the show run for? I think a month. Yeah. Wow. It was, it was cool. It was great because I met all these people there that, you know, I, that knew me from Charles Bronson that were just young kids from LA or whatever. And, right. Uh, so to be out there, it was this big deal, you know, because I've, I've always made work, you know, I've always been drawing. I've always been a drawer and to just see it through to a gallery show was cool. And, you know, that, that was becoming a thing in that era, you know, it was like to have, to have a show in LA and my friends at the time were all about that. Yeah. Uh, the, they were very supportive. Uh, yeah. And then your, was your next one, the one that happened in 2015 in Dusseldorf? That's right. Yeah. So from that point on, from 20, 2009 up until 2015, I just made the next body of work and it took that long to do. That's what I was curious of because yeah, it's, it's like the very intricate ink drawings. Yeah. Is it hard for you to know when a drawing is done? You just feel it. It's, it's like with anything, you just have a gut feeling. It's just like, you just know that it's time to let it go. And usually it involves an element of disgust. Other people have written about this that you you struggle through it to a point where you just can't look at it anymore. You can't stomach touching it again. And then you just let it go. It, that's kind of the, the irony of it is it's not that fulfilling actually to finish something and, and call it done because now you're back into that position of having to do it over again. So it really is a, an existential problem as, totally. as someone that makes, makes things. Yeah, yeah. Um... Well, shoot, man, I'm going to hit you with the last question, but for listeners, I'm, you know, I mentioned this in the intro, but, uh, you know, one of the things that I, that I appreciate about Mark is his, uh, absolute love for horror films. Um, your letterbox account, for example, is, uh, is something I really enjoy because <laughs> watching so many... also, by the way, speaking of letterbox, you're 20 movies ahead of me this year. I just looked last night. Oh, really? I'm at 262. I think you're at like 282 or something <laughs> like that. Nothing to brag about. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so like what, what I'm always curious about the stuff that you're watching and like, and, or things that you've rated in the past or whatever. So I'm, so after we get through this last question, um, I asked Mark to provide a list of uh, 10 horror films because uh, this is coming out on Halloween. But before we get there, Mark, what was the first, uh, when was the first time you felt like you were doing the thing you'd been working so hard towards? Charles Bronson's Youth Attack album. That was something that we set out to do very early on with, with the understanding that the band was going to end. So we were on a rigid time schedule and I could barely play guitar at the time. And our guitarist, Mike Sutton, left the band very early on in the process. So I think we wrote two songs with him and he exited to just focus on his art. So that put me in this position of um, having to write half the album at the level where the next guitarist, Jeff Jalen, who is like a guitar genius, uh, 
<laughs> right at his level. So, um, you know, other bands have done this sort of thing where the singer can kind of pluck through riffs and then you show it to the guy that can actually play it. And then right. he, play, he plays it for real. So that's, that's what it became. And um, I think from February to July, we worked on the, the writing and then we recorded and then we saw it out in the winter of the following year. So I think that really um, taught me something about planning and realizing goals because up to that point, apart from school, I just never really thought about the future. I didn't think long-term about what I wanted to achieve or what I was capable of. It was just live perpetually in the moment. And uh, I've realized now <laughs> that maybe wasn't the best thing. You know, th there's um, a spontaneity that you can get from doing that, but I think it has to be counterbalanced. So I try to be more deliberate these days with my planning. And even then, it's like there's so many external forces operating against me or just anybody that to get something done really does feel like a miracle at a certain point. So you know, I think it was that first album, you know, just getting there, that album to hold the album in your hands. It's such a, you know, such a beautiful moment to have. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that obviously it ended up having this huge legacy. Was it always the idea to do it as a 10 inch or did you, did you ever kick around? No, it was, it was an LP. It was first an LP on Langua Armada. And then the 10 inch version came out on um, Coalition. Oh, how So funny. there's, there's, there's 3000 LPs, 333 the metal cover yeah so three 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 and then oh god knows how many 10 inches wow god i didn't think i realized that the first the first press was a 12 inch that's interesting wow that's okay yeah, yeah. i came and went and um I, I remember it being a big deal but i was already living in new york then and so i missed it totally <laughs> and i think the other the other members were kind of bummed they were it was like damn it you know that was our chance yeah wow. and i ruined it well, I don't know if I ruined it because had we been together, I don't know if it would have had the same reception because I think there was this element of like, oh, shit, we missed it. But they left this behind. Totally. So there's a, rom there's a romance involved in that that I think is appealing. Those sorts of things do appeal to me where I'm like looking up authors or lost things that, you know, are forgotten. I don't know. Yeah. It's, 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 it's just one of those things. It's, it's a thematic issue. But uh yeah no i appreciate it and that's a that's a that's a great answer um all right let's talk horror okay uh i so yeah i asked you to do t 10 recommendations of stuff that is maybe a little lesser known because you have a you have a, a love for a lot of very like obscure slashers and things like that um so yeah uh do, do you want to start at number 10 yes um black sunday by Mario, directed by Mario Bava from 1960. Every shot in it is amazing. Bava came from a painting background, so every shot is perfectly framed like a painting. And, you know, it's a common movie. It basically started Italian horror, but if you're new to it, you have to see it. And I think people get, this is, because there's also another movie called Black Sunday about like the, it's like the, um, the is that the one with like, there's like a sports like it's like a sports movie. There's like a blimp. <laughs> what am I talking? About? What am I thinking about? It's um, it's like a somewhat like a like a terrorist is I think like hijacks a blimp and is going to crash it into <laughs> like a football I game. Um, because I, I remember because I, I remember 
people talking about this movie. I've never actually seen the one you're talking about, um, but I've seen stills from it. But then there's also a Black Sunday from 1977. Uh, okay, not which, that one. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the cover art for it is just like this big terror, like scary looking blimp about to crash into a football game. <laughs> no, I'll have to see that one someday. I, yeah, I for sure. Uh, uh, I met the lead. I met the, I met the lead actress from Black Sunday, and she's hilarious. She's one of the most like negative people I've ever met. Incredible. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure you connected well. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. We, we, you know, we chatted for a, a bit. I don't know. Was it like at a horror convention or something? Or yeah. Was it- <laughs> yeah. It was a chiller convention in New Jersey. Amazing. Yeah. And she's just sitting in this room by herself. And I was like, oh, that's so weird. That's Barbara Steele right there. You know, I got to talk to her. Yeah. Okay. What's number nine? Night of the Demon from 1957, directed by Jacques Tenour. It's a British film. Uh, it's what I think of as a perfect mood piece of a movie. The atmosphere in it is perfectly dialed in apart from showing the actual demon, which the director was forced to do, but I highly recommend it. And um, in seeing this, I realized that there's a motif in cinema that I'm really drawn to. And it's where like a guy and a girl team up to solve a mystery or to solve something. There's something about that that just sucks me in. I don't know. Yeah. You know, Cause it's like the drama that unfolds between them is always a perfect driver for the plot. Yeah. Yeah. So you say like the, it was the director was forced to show the demon thing. Is it like a, what, what is it like a, like an actual monster situation or does that, should we wait yeah. to watch the movie? They do show the monster, but it doesn't ruin the movie because the, the movie really is just about this mood that it establishes and it's very creepy. Okay. So I, I highly recommend that one. And it's from the fifties too. Late fifties, 57. Wow. Yeah. Nice. Okay. What's, what's number seven or number eight. Sorry. Uh, Rocktober blood. <laughs> Never <laughs> great, great title. Never heard of this one. <laughs> it's directed by uh, this woman, Beverly Sebastian from 1984. And it's a heavy metal horror movie. Okay. It's extremely crude. It has very over the top dialogue that it, to me is laugh out loud funny. Okay. And it has like ripping metal songs in it. And it has an incredibly surreal ending. It, it, the ending is sort of, uh, you just have to see it. Okay. It really is. There's something special about it where it's like, that is so over the top crazy. Is there anybody known in this? Like, is this one of these like no. really B movies that are like, oh, totally. Shit. Like, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, Beverly Sebastian is just some weirdo. She's like, um, and there was this whole scandal with the reissue of the movie because um, it, it like doesn't exist really as a Blu-ray. It never got restored. And um, she runs some sort of dog sanctuary and she's super Christian now. And you'd never know it from this movie. Oh, wow. But her son crowdsourced a Blu-ray reissue and then got all this money and then just pressed the VHS rip on a Blu-ray and then oh vanished. My God. Oh my God. Punk. <laughs> yeah. Total dick move. But uh, the movie itself is amazing. Wow. It's amazing. Okay. Um, all right. What's, uh, what's number seven? Blood Delirium from 1988. Uh, that's directed by Sergio Bergenzelli. And it's this really morbid, insane, gothic Italian movie. Okay. It's super decadent. And uh, 
it's it's really just over the top. It really is. Um, I actually got the Blu-ray of it for Christmas and was watching it with with my wife. And she's shaking her head. There's so many <laughs> so many elements in it that are just wrong. Uh, but I highly recommend it. Yeah. Okay, awesome. And it's I'm very, curious. Very obsessive. I'm curious where you are often finding things like are you still finding a lot of this stuff for the first time like a lot of these movies for the first time or like are you pretty dialed into most of this stuff like is it hard for you to find a new movie in this kind of world these days it's getting there yeah. but there's always new versions coming out of stuff oh fair and um i don't think i'll ever reach the point where I, i'll have seen everything sure you know, a, a director like jess franco for example has like over 200 films in his in his uh filmography so i don't think i'll ever see them all yeah um, and where yeah. are you where are you often watching stuff like is there a streaming service that you feel like caters to this no. stuff better than others no i don't stream i just download or i buy it yeah awesome you know yeah. awesome um all right what's uh what are we at number six number six primal rage okay <laughs> from night also from 1988 directed by vittorio rambaldi and that is, um, you know, like a uh, one of these sort of outbreak movies where they're testing on a monkey in a lab and it, mm-hmm. and it, and it breaks out and all hell breaks loose. But it's this insane Italian, Italian take on American college life. So it's this very odd stylization of, uh, of reality that only the Italians can do. And it's only from a certain era because yeah. they were, for whatever reason, in the late 80s, trying to appeal to an American audience. So they were coming over here and shooting. So uh, coming off the back of that, number five is Nightmare Beach, which is uh, came out a year later and it's the same crew and it's it's set on the beach in, uh, I believe, Daytona. Or is it Virginia? Is it actually Virginia Beach? Did they actually film it in Daytona or did they film it in, in, uh, in Italy? Um, it's actually, I think in Virginia, so okay, Virginia okay. beach. Um, yeah, it's mostly the same crew, a lot of the same actors and it's, it's so stupid and over the top <laughs> where like the killer drives a motorcycle and picks up hitchhikers and then electrocutes them on the bike. It doesn't sound like it works, <laughs> but the movie itself is incredible. Yeah. 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 Do you, is it hard? Like, what is it for you? Because, I mean, like, a lot of movies, you know, if it's so campy and so over the top, like, it almost kind of, it, it, it loses its fun or something like that. Or the quality, like, where do you find the quality in this stuff for you? Like, what is it that you're looking for? Because, I mean, like, f- my friend and I always talk about, because we're big horror guys, you know, where we say a bad comedy is the worst thing to watch because... If the jokes aren't landing, the whole thing feels embarrassing. You get secondhand embarrassing, embarrassment. But if a horror movie is bad, you can still find things to love about it. You know what I'm saying? It could be the great kills. It could be um, a specific set piece that just like rocks and makes up for the whole rest of the thing. Um, what for you is when a movie is just like, I did not enjoy that if when it comes to horror. Like what about horror? Do I just like well, anything? Yeah, like, like, I, like um, yeah, like what? Like what is the thing where it's like okay, they went, you know, like that's not working for me. Now I actually just don't like this. Yeah, I generally dislike horror comedies. I don't watch anything after nineteen ninety nine. Um, I don't like CGI. Um, yeah, I don't really like anything from Hollywood. Basically, like I just don't like big budget films. 
I think I just find appeal in the people that tried really hard to make something. They tried yeah. really hard to make it good and uh, just just see an affinity in these these filmmakers just struggling to get their film made, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. Okay. Where are we at, number four or three? Yeah, l- number four. Also, another Italian movie, Paganini Horror. Okay. From 1988, directed by Luigi Cozzi. And it's uh, just basically a haunted house movie about um, a female rock band that steals a uh, piece of music from Paganini's. Uh, you know, they get it from the devil. Okay. And, and they turn it into a pop song, which conjures up the spirit that starts killing them. And the dialogue, like even my wife, Chelsea, loves this movie because the dialogue is so ridiculous. It's so funny. Yeah. That's like a perfect elevator pitch movie. You know, it's like <laughs> pop band steals music that, uh, that brings the devil to life. It's like a, it's an elevator pitch that works. Yeah, I have the soundtrack. I, you know, I listen to it all the time. I like, genuinely like it. And it has one of the best posters ever made for a horror movie. But oh, wow. in no way does the poster reflect the movie. Right. So that's another that's another Italian distortion where they're trying to suck you in. Basically, I think what they do is they they sell the idea of a movie to the producer and the producer has someone craft up the, you know, they, they craft the poster and then they make the movie, you know, based right. on the idea. And they have very, very rarely do they have anything in common. Do you, do you follow that uh, that Deadly Prey gallery? Do you know what no. I'm talking about? uh it's it's like it's like it's like very over the top posters but um i forget what country it's they're from but it's this sort of deal where like it was once explained to me that it was like they just tell the artist the plot and then they make the poster and it's always just like the most insane thing you've ever seen in your entire life where you're like that is so far from what the movie actually is you know yeah, it's interesting because if they were to make a poster from the movie itself it would probably be kind of boring looking right but the the movie poster um, uh, is so much better than the movie, but it somehow makes the movie cool. Yeah. All right, what we got next? Okay, so uh, number three is Ghost House, which is uh, from 1987, and that's directed by Umberto Lenzi. And I think of this as a, a junk shop horror movie where it's just plucking ideas and sort of Frankensteining them together into a horror movie. And again, the dialogue is so over-the-top dumb. <laughs> I just got one of my favorite actresses in it. Um, and it's, I don't know what else to say about it. It's, it's a, it's another haunted house movie where not a whole lot makes sense. And it's just like the scenes exist to kill the actors. You know what I mean? Right. Like the, like the there's no real point to the movie other than like, what sort of set pieces can we create to take these people out? Awesome. Awesome. Okay. What's number two? Uh, the Blob remake from 1988. Oh man, yeah. I saw, actually, I think I just saw you recently just rewatched this, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. By Chuck Russell, directed by Chuck Russell. Um, again, this has the perfect guy-girl team up in it, and it's a very cozy depiction of a small town in America. You know, it's a very uh, quaint American life, and the effects I think are rivaled only by the thing. The, right. The effects in it are truly incredible. Like even by today's standards. They really do hold up. Um, and it is a gruesome movie. It is so insane. I think it was like, I think that was one of the very first horror movies that I ever saw as a, as a kid. Oh, God. Like, I think it was probably, it was like, probably like that and, you know, 
it the first you know the original yeah you know like i have a feeling those were two the two that did it for me um but yeah i haven't watched this i haven't watched the remake in a number of years when i saw you post about it i was like i gotta revisit that oh yeah it's worth it um yeah, it's it's got a great anti-hero and what what I really like about it is how unsparing it is of the cast. It just annihilates its cast members. People that you you the film presents to you as likable and that you you know, you're on board with them, it just takes them out mercilessly. Right. <laughs> um yeah, I, I like that about it. Amazing, amazing. Uh are we at number yeah. 1? Number 1. What do we got? Uh, is Trick or Treat from 1986. And that was directed by Charles Martin Smith. And that's another heavy metal horror movie with uh, Skippy from Family Ties. Okay. And uh, it's another one. If, if you haven't seen it, you have to see it. It's it's another one of these uh, very cozy movies where I wish I could live in that town. I wish I like there's part of me that wants to live on that street. There's something about the trees growing over the street with like the, the street light kind of coming through the tree branches and the leaves yeah. at night and the breeze in the air. It's just so moody. And, um, you know, I love, I love eighties heavy metal. So you know, what's it's actually all it's, that resonance. It's, it's funny. Resonates. Late last night, I couldn't sleep. And I was, uh, just like, look, I, I love collecting like original pressings of horror soundtracks and things like that. And I found an account that was like selling a good batch of them. And one of them, they actually had the trick or treat soundtrack, um and i caught the you know the covers like this drawing that has like someone playing a, a playing guitar like in flames or something like that i can't i can't remember exactly what it was but it caught my eye and i was curious what actually is the what is the plot of this movie <laughs> well the soundtrack is great actually yeah. it's by this band fast way and it's fast eddie from motorhead oh sick yeah doesn't sound like motorhead sure it's not quite hair metal though it's weird but the plot is just about this lonely kid who lives with a single mom and he obsesses over his favorite hero who dies at the beginning of the movie. So he's he's doing laundry and sees on the news that he died in a fire and he had just written him a fan letter. So his world is turned upside down and he's totally bullied at school. But he is friends with a local DJ played by Gene Simmons <laughs> who who knew him. So that what I forgot to mention is that the his hero went to the same high school. Okay. And so the Gene Simmons character knew him from back in the day. And because he's a DJ, has an acetate of the last recording they did. And so he takes it home and plays it, but it turns out it's the acetate is there's only one copy and it's possessed. So it summons up the spirit of his famous rock star hero. Who actually uses him, ends up using him to cause destruction or wreak havoc on the high school. But that initially, so he strange. uses the demon spirit of his hero to take revenge on his bullies. So it's, it's very satisfying in that way. Oh, that sounds amazing. All right. I'm going to definitely try to find this. <laughs> so good. So good. Uh, this has been awesome, man. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you. Uh, it's been a joy. You know, you're someone who uh, has has been a figure in my life for a long time. And I was oh. so excited to work with you with uh, the Hesitation Wound stuff. And uh, please oh, keep up what you're doing, man. It's, it's, well, thank you. It's awesome. That's very nice. Appreciate it, buddy.
And that is our show. Thank you so much to Mark for coming on and thank you for listening. This episode was produced, edited, and made to sound oh so good by my boy, Ryan Rainbow. And a reminder, there's a bonus episode available right now where Mark answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. You can access that by going to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. Thank you so much. Have a good rest of your week. Hope you have a happy Halloween. Take care. Bye-bye.